0: If the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, then the prayer that's encapsulated in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest prayer and the most unique prayer that's ever been prayed. We call it the Lord's Prayer. John Croissant, in his book, The Greatest Prayer, describes the Lord's Prayer in this way, and I quote, The Lord's Prayer is Christianity's greatest prayer. It is also Christianity's strangest prayer. It is prayed by all Christians, but never mentions Christ. It is prayed in all churches, but it never mentions church. It is prayed on all Sundays, but it never mentions Sunday. It is called the Lord's Prayer, but it never mentions Lord. It is prayed by fundamentalist Christians, but it never mentions the inspired inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth, the miracles, the atoning death, or the bodily resurrection of Christ. It is prayed by evangelical Christians, but it never mentions the evangelism. Or the gospel. It is prayed by Pentecostal Christians, but it never mentions ecstasy of the Holy Spirit. It is prayed by congregational, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and Roman Catholic Christians, but it never mentions congregation, priest, bishop, or pope. It is prayed by all Christians, who split from one another another over this or that doctrine, but it never mentions a single one of those doctrines. It is prayed by Christians who focus on Christ's substitutionary sacrificial atonement for human sin, but it never mentions Christ's substitution, sacrifice, atonement, or sin. It is prayed by Christians who focus on the next life in heaven or in hell, but it never mentions the next life, heaven or hell. It is prayed by Christians who emphasize what is never mentioned, and also by Christians who ignore what it does mention. They call this prayer the Lord's Prayer, while our Roman Catholic friends would call it our Father Prayer based on how it begins. Still others refer to it as the model prayer, but in reality, none of those titles really suit this prayer. If we were going to put a, a name on this, this prayer, we really should call it the Disciples Prayer because Jesus is teaching us as disciples how to pray. Now, like the Ten Commandments, this prayer is divided into, into two emphases. The first emphasis of the prayer is going to be on our relationship with God. The second emphasis of the prayer is going to be on our relationship with one another, though we're always talking to God in this prayer. In Luke's gospel, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And so in Luke 11, 1, Jesus responds by saying, when you pray. Matthew captures the same instruction as in the middle of this prayer, three times he'll mention when you pray. Now, this could be one of those times that Matthew has clustered the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer in, in this greater extended sermon that he is uh, recording for us in Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7, because Luke records the teaching of this prayer in a different setting. But it could be that Jesus taught his main disciples how to pray. In Luke 11.1, 1, he could have taught them at that time, and, and now here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is recording another time when Jesus teaches all of his disciples that are listening how to pray. And that may explain the, the nuances of difference between Matthew and Luke's version of the prayer. Now, last week, we made a point to tell us that, or Jesus made a point to tell us that praying is what he expects. I mean, he desires for us to pray, he expects for us to pray. And I said last week that praying is the lifeblood of your Christian relationship with God. Your relationship with God is predicated and built on the fact that you regularly converse with God. But but prayer had become something very different for many Jews in Jesus day. Let's go as, as a reminder. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Of Matthew chapter 6. And, and for those of you that are our guests, and this is your first time with us, we are studying through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're at chapter 6, and we're going to refresh our minds with 5 through 7. When you pray, Jesus said, and this was last week we looked at this, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, in the days of, of Palestine, when Jesus walked the earth, the Jewish life consisted of, of praying, and it consisted of praying at least twice a day, if not three times a day. We think of the Muslims praying five times a day. Well, the Jews had such a thing. They prayed three times a day. They prayed at nine in the morning, at noon, and then at three in the afternoon. And so when we read in Acts chapter three, verse one, it says the book of Acts records, or excuse me, the book of Acts records this at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon, John and Peter were going to the temple. Devout Jewish men would try to pray all three of those times. And so in the Old Testament, when Daniel is arrested for praying to a God other than, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember it's because he prays regularly three times a day, goes to his upper room, opens the window, and everybody can see him praying as he prays toward Jerusalem. So Jewish men prayed on these regular, at these regular times. Now, what happens to us a spiritual practice that can begin with such intensity can often become something that we are just doing as a perfunctory ritual and that's what hap- that's what's happened in the time of jesus so much so there's really two problems with praying people are praying for their own reward and they're praying meaningless repetitious prayers and so jesus basically you know confronts both of these and he says if you know if you're praying so people will notice you so people will think you're spiritual I mean, that prayer means nothing to God. You have your reward in full. It's a meaningless prayer. And then he also confronts just repeating the same prayer over and over and over again as a meaningless repetition, thinking that the more I say it, the more God's going to bless me or the more God's going to hear it. And he he confronts both of these. He rebukes men for praying for what they can get out of it personally and for praying meaningless, repetitious, mindless prayers. Now, instead, Jesus tells us to pray differently, and what we're going to look at this morning in the text that lies before us is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray in light of what he just said. Don't pray prayers to be noticed. Don't pray meaningless, repetitious, monotonous prayers. Don't pray like that. Instead, I want to teach you to pray. And so in verse 9, we have Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. Don't pray with meaningless repetition. Don't pray so people will notice you. Verse 9, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Don't be confused if your Bible doesn't have that last part. Verse 14, "'For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions.'" Now, I don't believe for a moment, and neither do you, that Jesus is teaching them a prayer that they might rotely and meaninglessly and monotonously repeat over and over. He's not giving them another prayer to merely, merely repeat but Jesus, I believe, is giving them a model, and then I'm going to use that word model. He's giving them a model prayer, not to be repeated, but that we might see the elements of that prayer and include those elements in our own conversations with God, in our own prayers. And so really, this, this disciple's prayer isn't giving us something to repeat over and over and over again. It's teaching us how to pray, and it's telling us, incorporate these seven aspects in your praying. Now, praying is a conversation. That doesn't mean that every time you pray, you have to include all seven of these things. It's just simply saying, make these seven things a part of your conversations with God. Furthermore, this prayer is not an all-inclusive prayer. By that, I mean that these seven things are not the only things that you include in your praying to God. For one, for instance, gratefulness is not mentioned in the Lord's Prayer. And like I just read from, from Mr., I don't remember his name, but, but you remember he talks about all these things that are not in the prayer. There are so many things that we should and could and add to our conversations with God. Gratefulness is one of those, but it's not in that prayer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us back through the prayer, and I want you to see these seven elements that I believe we should... Jesus is teaching us these seven elements, and he's saying, men and women... Sons and daughters, when you pray, make these a part of your conversation with your Father in Heaven. So, let's begin to look at them. The first one is this. When you pray, remember who God is. Remember who God is. He is our Father. And so Jesus begins this prayer, our Father who is in Heaven. It's really easy to forget, isn't it, that God is not some cosmic force out there somewhere, disconnected and unconcerned from us, you know, there's a word for that. We call it deism, right? Deism believes that God is some great power who created all things, but he doesn't care about us. He doesn't know about us. He set this all in motion, and then he went off on vacation, and, and we, he doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, and and that is not how we should view God, but it's easy for us. We would never claim to be deists, and we would never consciously say what I just said as what we believe, but we act this way sometimes. We act this way as if God is just out there and he's totally disconnected from me and not involved in my life. Jesus says, when you talk to God, you're not repeating yourself with vain, repetitious prayers because God is some cosmic force who doesn't care. No, you're communicating to someone who has, who, who is a person and someone who uses the designation Father to describe himself and his relationship with us. I, I tell you, that is so immense. If you'll just let that sink in, God says, I am your father. I want to be your father. And Jesus is teaching us, when you're talking to God, talk to him like that. He's your father. God, is, God has always been the father, even to Israel. In the Old Testament, for instance, in Isaiah, listen to this verse. It's Isaiah 63:16. If you're taking notes and want to write it down, but here's what the verse says, yet you are our father. Even though Abraham does not know us and Israel doesn't recognize us, recognize us you, Lord, are our father. Your name is our redeemer from ancient of times. So there were, there were people in Isaiah's day that were recognizing that God is our father. Now, even though the Jews knew this, Jesus took this to a whole new level. I mean, he consistently talked about God as our father and God as his father. I mean, so much so that, I mean, people were taken back by it. And one of the things that Jesus communicated about God as our father was that he cared about us. And it doesn't matter how bad or how hard we stumble or how far we fall, Jesus loves us. And so he told parables like the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and and more specifically, maybe even the parable of the lost son, about this father's love for his for his wayward sons and daughters. And the early church picked up on this. So the apostles, if you read through the New Testament and you look for it, they're consistently talking about God as our father. God is our father in heaven. The Apostle John would write in one of his letters, he would say, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. First John 3.1. So there's a sense, a cosmic sense, in which God is the Father of all mankind. As the creator of every man and woman, God is their Father. I'm going to say with a little F. But there's a sense in which God wants to be your father with a big F. He wants to adopt you into his personal family so that he is your daddy. As a matter of fact, the word in the Hebrew language is the word Abba. And that's the word which we would we would translate that daddy into our English language. God wants to be your daddy. He doesn't want to just be this this strict authoritarian father that maybe you respect but don't have an intimate relationship with. Jesus is teaching you to pray, pray like this, our father. So I want to say to all of you this morning, in your praying, as Jesus taught us, start off remembering who God is. He's your daddy. He cares about you. He says things like, hey, I know the number of hairs on your head. I know your thoughts before you think. He is so intimately involved in our life. He knows everything about us. So when you're talking to him, remember who he is. Now, two things before I, I, I move on. I just have to mention this. Notice Jesus says, pray like this, our father. He doesn't say, pray like this, my father. He says, pray like this, our father. And what I think what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples is that we, we, we kind of personalize this prayer, and thus We should. But there's a, there's a corporate sense of this prayer is that, that Jesus or God the Father, He's my dad, but He's your dad too, Dale. And that makes us brother and sister. And He's your dad too, Sam. And that makes us brother and brother. And, and Ronnie and George, He's your dad together. So that makes you guys brothers, you see? So there's a, there's a corporate nature in our praying. So when you're praying to Father, remember that He's the Father of all of us who have trusted him as Lord and Savior. And the other thing I want you to notice is that he says, our Father who is in heaven, right? He's different than my earthly dad. And you know, I'm so sorry for some of you who had dads who really dropped the ball, dads who may have failed you, dads who may have hurt you, dads who may have, you know, just really messed up. And so you, your view of fatherhood is, is, is messed up. But I want to tell you something. God is our Father in heaven. And, and he, he hasn't messed up. And he's loved you and he loves you still. And, and so, you know, when, when you're thinking about this and you're talking to him, remember that, that he's not your earthly dad. Hopefully you had an earthly dad that makes you just picture who our heavenly father is in such a great way. But remember, he's our father in heaven. He, he is Lord over all. You are all princess, princesses and princes. That's it, right? We are sons and daughters of the most high king. He's, he's our Father in heaven. Let me move on. When you pray, Jesus says. Here's the second thing. Acknowledge, acknowledge the character of God. He is holy. Jesus said, pray this way. Hallowed or holy be your name. That's what hallowed mean. It means holy. And the word holy is a religious word that we use. And, and you know, you may not know what it means. So let me tell you, to be holy is to be different. You know, when we were singing, holy, holy, I was singing in my heart different, different is the Lord. And I said, well, that doesn't sound very good, Father. But but you know, He is different than us. He's holy. And what that means is He's set apart. He's special. He, he's extraordinary because He's God. And so Jesus says, when you're praying to this Father who loves you, don't forget He's different than us. I mean, his character is perfect. G- Jesus said, remember this, pray like this, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. So he, he's telling us, you know, honor the name of God. As a matter of fact, there's a commandment that tells you don't dishonor the name of God. And if I were to say it now, God, you know, you would all, uh, God, you know, damn everybody. We would all recognize that as a, as a, a wrong way of using, of not hallowing or not, not honoring God's name. But let me tell you something. Every time you say, oh my God, or every time you say God as an expletive, we, we are dishonoring the name of God. We are cheapening his name. So, so Jesus is telling us to honor the name of God, but I think Jesus is telling us when you pray, the name of God speaks of his character. Your name, in your name is found your character. Now, that's why your name, your name personally It evokes certain things in people because your character and your personality is equated with your name. Everybody with me? And so the name of God is to be hallowed, which means his character is set apart. His character is different. Philip Keller writes this, and I quote, I think of God's character in the form of a six-sided cube. On the first side, we see God is utterly holy, pure, and flawless. On the second side, we see his absolute love, compassion, and concern. On the third side, we see his complete justice and righteousness, his impeccability. On the fourth side, God reveals his boundless mercy, kindness, and patience. On the fifth side, God is utterly honest, true, and reliable. And his sixth side is where God is infinitely faithful, understanding, and attentive to his children. I mean, that's just one man's perspective, but I definitely want you to get what he's saying the character of God the beauty of the character of God is so awesome so when you're praying when you're praying remember the character of God recognize his character acknowledge it i often pray i often pray recognizing the character of God and by what i mean by this is i tell God how i want to have his compassionate character i want to be compassionate like him i want to have I want to have his humility. I pray about this all the time. I want to have the humility that Jesus, that God himself has displayed in lowering himself to be like us, to save us. I want to have the faithfulness of Jesus in my character because that's that's how I hallow his name. That's what Jesus means. Number three, when you pray, affirm God's desire. And what is his desire? His desire is that all of his creation walk submitted to him. Verse 10 your kingdom come, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus teaches us two things with that. Number one is that the will of God is always done in heaven. And heaven is where God is. God's presence, God's, you know, I don't know how that works because God is omnipresent, but, but, but God's heaven is where his presence dwells. And, and according to Jesus, in God's presence, the will of God is always done. But here's the second thing Jesus tells us, that on earth, That is not true. The will of God is not always done in in an ultimate sense. So here's how we should pray, God. We want Your will, Your design, to be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. We want earth to represent what heaven represents, where Your will is always done. And we should be we should be praying that we should be affirming that God's desire is for all men in all of creation to walk in submission to the will of God. Now, one question we might ask is: If God is all powerful and God's desire is for all men to submit to Him and His in His design, why is the world so broken? I'm asking that rhetorically. I don't really want you to answer out loud. But if God's all-powerful and God's desire is that his will be done on earth, as it is is heaven, why isn't it done? Why is the world so broken? You know, and I think that's a great question. And I think the only answer is that there's something that God desires more than that his will be done on earth, you know, in the sense of forcing it or making it happen because of who he is. He desires for his creatures to respond to him, even love him as he has loved us. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this, and I quote, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice and that man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to, to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it, inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has will to give men limited freedom, who is there to stand his hand or to say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So here's what Jesus is praying. And here's what you and I should pray. We should pray that God's will, that men would submit themselves to the will of God. And I'm so great grateful for this. God has promised the full restoration of all things. Paradise is returning. You remember God created paradise in Genesis 1. And He put man in there and He said, Boy, you, you guys, you guys be in charge of this. And we did what? We sinned, right? And with that sin came a sinful nature for all of Adam and Eve's prodigy. And so we've broken it. But God's going to restore it. That's our promise. And so when Jesus says, pray that God's will might be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, we're praying for men to submit themselves to the will of God. And you're praying for yourself to submit to the will of God. Just because you've been redeemed, just because you've been regenerated, doesn't mean that you will live according to your new nature. You will continue to sin, unfortunately. Uh, So we're praying, God, help me submit to your will that the will of God might be done in my life. But we're also praying this, Jesus, come back come back and set up your kingdom, come back, return. That's what Jesus is telling us to pray for. Number four, I think when you pray, express your dependence on God, even for your daily bread. Verse 11, pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. I've said this before many times, but the import of that misses us because you wake up in the morning and you're hungry and you don't say, where am I going to get my next food? You don't ever say that. You know where your next food is. You're not worried about it. If you're hungry, you go to the fridge or you go to the pantry and you fulfill your desire. But you know what? In those days, when people wondered, when we went to the Congo, I mean, there was people in the Congo that were wondering, where is my next meal coming from? There are Syria today in, in, in Iraq and in all these places that are just plummeted with with war. I mean, people are waking up. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. So when Jesus said, Give us this day our daily bread. We don't really get that because we've got our daily bread provided for us. But Jesus is basically saying, guys, be dependent on God. Be dependent on God for your provision. So in your prayers, express that dependence on God. I've thought about this all week. I think the praying that we do at mealtimes has to do with this right here. Give us this day our daily bread. But you know, how do we pray at our mealtimes? We say, Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. We either pray that way or we pray which I'm not even sure what that means, but then we, we, we pray, Lord, thank you for this food. Those are the two things we pray. Can I make a suggestion? Why, why don't we turn our mealtime prayers to be a time of really expressing our dependence on God? God, you are the provider of this meal. Now I was with someone last night, and this is on my mind, right? I was on the, this is on my, and we were having dinner with someone last night, and that, that person prayed for us, And that person expressed this very thought, Lord, we are dependent on you. And I guess because this was so real for me and so there because I've been dealing with it all week, is is, and I recognize that, that's how we should be praying at our mealtimes, remembering our dependence on God. Look at verse 8. Go back up to verse 8. Jesus said, don't be people that just repeat yourself over and over and over again. Why? Because don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You know, when you ask God for things, you're not informing God of anything that He doesn't already know. So so why why do it? Why pray? Because Jesus says, I think he's saying, we're expressing our dependence upon our Father as being the one who provides for our needs. You know, folks, we've got to stop looking to ourselves. Uh, God is the one who meets our needs. He's providing us shelter, work, friends. These are all needs we have. You know, look to him. Trust him. James says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. He's our Father. Don't forget, what's the first thing I said? Hey, when you pray, remember who you're praying to, your father, your father who loves you and cares for you. I mean, Ann and I would do anything for our children. We would do anything for our children. And if me being flawed and me being fallen would do anything for my children, how much more does our father in heaven love you? And, and he's going to take care of you. And I realize it doesn't always look like it looks like for us. You know, I mean, I mean, sometimes we die of cancer and God doesn't answer our request that we not die. But it's important for men to die once and then the judgment. Everybody's going to die. I, I recognize that sometimes when I'm asking my father for things that I think I want, he doesn't always do them the way I want. But I want you to know, God, you can depend on God. He's going to be there for you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Pray with dependence upon the Father. The next one. I think it's number five. When you pray, confess your need of God's forgiveness, even as you express your own forgiving heart towards the Father. Verse 12. Pray like this and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In Jesus, I struggle with this. I gotta be honest with you. I struggle with this because in the Lord Jesus, I am forgiven. In the gospel, the good news is I am forgiven. It's done, it's settled, it's complete. It's not like I'm adding to what Jesus has done. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So listen, if you belong to Christ, your sins are forgiven. And there's nothing you do to add to it. So I struggle when Jesus says, pray like this, you know, Father, forgive me my sins, As I forgive others. So, what, what is Jesus talking about? And here's what I think. This is, this is my understanding of what Jesus is saying to us there. He's saying to us that though our sins in Christ have been forgiven, my sin affects my relationship with God. It affects my relationship. Not, not that I'm lost, but it, 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 the shame and the guilt it causes a, a divide, a division between me and my father that I don't want. And the, the thing that I liken that to in my notes here is a marriage partner. Okay? So you sin against your marriage partner and you hurt them. You, you speak, you speak hurtfully. Your words aren't, your words are ungracious. They're, you're selfish and you do something to hurt your spouse. You do not cease to be unmarried but your marriage is affected negatively and your relationship with your wife or your husband is hurt by that. And the only way that it's restored is when you humble yourself and you confess your sins to your spouse and you say, I've failed you. I've let you down. Will you forgive me? And they forgive you. I mean, hopefully you have a better spouse than, 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 than even that. You, you hopefully have a godly spouse. No, I shouldn't say better. A godly spouse who has already forgiven you even though you haven't asked, right? But let's face it. You know, when you hurt your spouse, it hurts them, and they tend to pull back. See, that's what what sin always does. It pulls us back from one another. And so, you hear what I think Jesus is saying, when he says, pray like this, Father, forgive me my sins. He's saying, you know... It's not that in me, it's not that in me, you're not, God hasn't forgiven you or paid the penalty of your sin on the cross, but, but it affects your relationship with me. And so confess your sins so that you can be restored from the isolation and the guilt and the broken unity that comes about when you fall and when you stumble. If you can relate to that in marriage, or if you can relate, if you're not married, if you can relate to that in a friendship, I believe that's what Jesus is saying. So so confess your sins and restore that relationship. But notice the implicit warning in the text. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Father, forgive me my sins. As what? Not a rhetorical question. Somebody answer me. As what? As I forgive those who have sinned against me. And, uh, you know, I I tell you what, this, this is a hard thing here. It's a hard thing. Jesus basically says, if you're not willing to forgive others... He's not going to forgive you. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to make that work with the fact that in Christ God has forgiven me. But he adds a commentary to this in verse fourteen. Look at look at I've included it in the text for this reason today. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And Jesus even told this big story about a guy who was forgiven this immense amount by a king, and then he wouldn't forgive this other guy who owes him peanuts. And you remember the king pulls him back in and says, "You're going to prison, and you ain't getting out till you pay every dime." What does that mean? You know, I, I, how does that fit with the fact that in Christ I'm freely forgiven? How does that work? All I know is that Jesus tells us that that His forgiveness is contingent upon our forgiveness. And when you figure that out, you, you come explain it to me. But don't just disregard his don't disregard his warning. Everybody following me? Everybody understand? I'm trying to be honest. I don't know how it works that by faith I'm forgiven, but at the same time, there is warning after warning after warning that if I will not forgive you, he will not forgive me. Let me stop here for just, let me pause just for a second. You know, there are people that you have not forgiven. And if somebody's coming to mind right now, man, be forewarned. Be warned. You don't have the right to claim God's forgiveness when you're not willing to forgive the person who's hurt you. And some of you need to leave this place today. Really, you need to leave this place. You need to get on the phone. You need to go in person. You need to write a letter. You need to do something. But you need to forgive that person. You need to express that forgiveness to that person. Number six, when you pray, seek God's deliverance from evil, even temptation. Verse 13, pray like this. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, folks, I've said this many, many times, but maybe for our guests, let me just repeat it. God does not tempt us, never tempts us. James tells us that, James 1.13 in your Bible says, no one undergoing a trial should say I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does, doesn't tempt anyone. Okay, so here's what James says. God doesn't lead you to sin. God's not trying to put you in a place where he desires you to sin. However, the Bible does clearly say that God tests you. And here's the rub. The same Greek word is translated test and tempt. So how can James say God does not tempt you when it places it says that God does test us? I mean, one of the biggest testing is when Jesus went into the wilderness you know, being led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, right? In fact, let me read you the verse. This is Matthew 4, 1. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, God's not, Jesus isn't tempting him, but, but the Spirit is leading him. Matthew records it like, I mean, Mark records it like this. And the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan. Well, here's all that means. Satan wants you to fall and fail. God wants you to stand. And God will sometimes allow you to be tempted, not by himself, but he'll allow you to be tempted. He's letting you be tested, not because he wants you to fall, but because he knows you can stand. And, and so he's letting you be, be tested. Jesus was tested. He's our, he's our great high priest. He was tested. We will be tested. You will be tested. And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, Lord, deliver me from temptation. Deliver me from temptation. And, and so we should, we should be praying. You, listen, part of your prayer times and your conversations with the Father is, it should be like this. Father, I know you're going to test me. You've said you are. I know you are. But, but Lord, please keep me from the temptation that Satan wants to bring my way. Lord, I, don't, I really don't want to go through that. Uh, there, there are tons of temptations that are going to come. And Jesus says, deliver us from evil, and that evil may be personally directed at you. I, can re- I think I've told this story before, that's part of the curse of being here so long. I've told all my stories a hundred times, right? But I remember going to the dumpster one time. This was years ago, and there beside the dumpster was a stack of uh, penthouse or playboy magazines and as soon as i pulled up i saw them, and i knew and it was a huge temptation to not look at them. and i remember this is one time i'm telling you this because i i won (laughs) if i'd failed i wouldn't be telling you i'm just being honest that's the truth but this time i won and i won by calling ann and i said look i've just shown up at the dumpster and there's this ton of these magazines and I said, stay on the phone with me because I don't want to fail. And I picked him up and I threw him in the dumpster and I put something over him so no other guy would find him when he was dumpster diving. And, 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 and I left and I won that battle, you know. When we're praying, Lord, deliver us from evil, we need to be praying personally, Lord, deliver me from such evil temptations that come my way. Because let's face it, you know, you're strong this moment, but the next moment you may, may be weak. Now, I want you to listen. You're not, you're, you're inexcusable. You're inexcusable. By that, I mean this. I think Jesus has promised, if you belong to him, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and he will keep you. I mean, you may have to do things like like Micah told us a few weeks ago when we were talking about lust, and there may be some things you need to do to help yourself win these battles. But but you know what? You can win. And, and you know, if we start thinking that we can't win, this this is why that verse hit me. Remember the verse from Deuteronomy? I have set before you today blessing and cursing, and it's basically your choice, So I want to tell us we're without excuse because God has set before us a path of blessing and he's enabling us as as his sons and daughters to win. Now I realize we're not going to win every battle. I know we're going to fail because we still... Fight this sinful nature. But you know what? We can win. And Jesus is saying, pray. Pray for deliverance. Pray that God would keep you from those really hard temptations that Satan wants to bring against you. And I think the father sometimes, as any good father would say, there, there are times when Caleb, and he's here, so I'm using him as an illustration, when he was little, there are things that I would, I would not have allowed in his life because he wasn't ready for them. But when he was older, there are things that I'd let in his life because I knew he could handle them. You see? And God is the same way with us. When Satan wants to, to, to come and just put temptation on you, I mean he's, he's governing your life. And he's watching over you. And some things he lets and some things he doesn't. But when he does, I believe he knows you can stand. One more thought about this. I read this and I think it could be true. All this is in the plural. All this is in the plural. So deliver us from deliver us from evil. Deliver us from temptation. Man, it could be that Jesus is praying. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. Listen, in just a few years, man, everybody's gonna hate you. Everybody's gonna try to kill you. They're gonna try to kill you because they'll think they're they think they're doing a service for God by killing you. So pray, pray that God won't lead us, his church, into such times as that. A D seventy would bring about such destruction against Jerusalem and, and the you know they say that believers believers escape that because Jesus had forewarned them. And so when the fall of Jerusalem came, history, you know, there are historical records that say the Christians had all left Jerusalem when Rome gathered around Jerusalem. So pray like that. And then finally, when you pray, Jesus says, affirm God's sovereignty for all eternity. And the verse that I'm quoting you is in in your King James Bibles. Uh, It'll be in any translation from the majority text. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, some of your Bibles don't have that verse. And the reason why they don't have that verse is because when older manuscripts were found that survived of the Bible, that verse was missing. And so there's kind of this textual uh, principle that the older a manuscript is, the more reliable it is. And so some of the translations, like the NAS, uh, the... English Standard Version, the Holman Christian Standard. They're, they're translated from these older texts, and so they leave that verse out. I don't know how I feel about that. I understand what they're saying. Um, but, I, but I'm going to treat this verse, it, it's part of the majority text. In other words, most of the texts that survived had this verse in it, but the oldest did not. And But I'm going to assume that the verse was taught by Jesus. And the reason I say that is because I believe it is something Jesus would have taught. Whether it was actually what Jesus taught in the sermon—I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount or in that prayer, you know, I don't know for sure, but I believe it's something he would have taught, and the reason I say that is because his forefather, King David, listen to the prayer that David mentions in First Chronicles 29, 11. Write that down if you're taking notes so you can go back and read it. But it says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as, as head over all. So, so I believe this verse could be very this prayer could be something Jesus is teaching us to pray. In fact, I would encourage you to pray it. But so, and here's what I'm saying: when you pray, affirm God's sovereignty. You say, Well, what is God's sovereignty? Well, there, there's two ways of defining sovereignty. I'm gonna just tell you what I think God's sovereignty is. God's sovereignty is the fact that He rules over all, that He has all power, He has all knowledge. Nothing happens that, that is, is God is like twiddling his thumbs and saying, oh, I couldn't deal with that. I couldn't stop that. I didn't know about that. I think God's sovereignty overall means that he rules overall. He has power overall so that nothing happens apart from at least God's permissive will. Now, I realize other people define sovereignty a little bit different than me, but that's how I, I define it. And, and I want you to see what I mean when I say pray God's sovereignty and for all eternity. Jesus says, pray like this. God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. Here's what Jesus is saying. When we talk to our Father, just acknowledge that the kingdom belongs to him. And what is the kingdom? It's talking about all of creation. It's talking about God's rule on the earth. It's his kingdom. It belongs to him and to no one else. And then he says, pray like this. Yours is the kingdom and yours is the power. Here's what we're saying. All power belongs to God. What is, is because God wants it that way. And I don't. And again, I want to say, when I say wants it that way, doesn't mean that, that He is determining all the evil in the world because that's what He wants. That's not what I mean. What I mean is it is that way because God has allowed it to be that way because had He not chosen to allow it, it wouldn't be that way. And so God holds all sway over all of his creation. God can do anything he wants. And what is, is what ultimately God wants in the sense that no one thwarts his will. No one, can, no one supersedes God's will and God's authority, okay? And then the final thing that, that Jesus says, pray like this, Yours, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. Now, glory is hard to define, isn't it? And it's not like defining the word baseball. Let's just say you hadn't seen the baseball. You hadn't seen a baseball. I could define a baseball for you. It's round, it's hard, it's got leather all around it and it's stitched together. And I, could, I could define it so that you would have an understanding of what I'm talking about. Defining glory is like defining beauty. Defining beauty is hard, defining glory is hard. So I'm going to use just some comparisons. Here's what I think it means when when Jesus says, pray like this, Father, yours is the glory. And and I think what he means by this is, God, yours, here, here we go, yours is the beauty. Yours is the goodness. Yours are the perfections of holiness. God, to you belong everything that's good and everything that's set apart and everything that's beautiful and everything that's good. There's none good, Jesus said, but the Father. And I think the glory, when he says to you belongs to the glory, is all goodness, all, gl- all holiness, all, all perfections belong to the Father. So when we pray, affirm God's sovereignty over all. His power, His glory, and His creation and kingdom. So when you pray, pray those seven things. Not every time include other things, but those are seven aspects of how we should talk to our Father. Father, yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory. To you belongs all praise, to you belongs the submission of our lives, and Lord, as your sons and daughters this morning, we we just love you, Father, and we ask that this week, as we leave this place and leave our gathering, that we might uh, choose the path of blessing, the, the, the path of being faithful to you. Help us with that. We confess our our weakness.